You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. I'm pretty positive. I remember watching it live on TV when uh, Robert Knievel, you may know him as Evil Knievel, jumped over the Snake River Canyon in, in Idaho. Um, I think it's my, I was a five and a half year old when it happened, and I think it's my very first memory of, of watching something on TV. Um, Evil Knievel was going to jump over uh, the Snake River Canyon, and he was going to need um, a sky cycle, his motorcycle, with 500 pounds of jet expulsion to get 300 miles per hour on a ramp, a 200 foot ramp, to be able to jump the 1,350 foot gorge, the canyon in front of him. That's a fourth of a mile. Um, the day before, they had sent two dummies, 170 pound dummies, uh, test dummies, not real, I mean, they, they would have been, I'm sure, that would have been an accurate word also, but test dummies uh, into the same sky cycle, 500 pounds of propulsion. 300 miles an hour, 200 foot ramp, and they both crashed right there. In fact, they exploded as they hit the bottom of the Snake River there in, in, in Idaho in that canyon. And so I, I see this in my mind's eye still. Um, Evil Knievel was in a, it was like a, um, a bulky space suit. In fact, he could not even bend his arms. So they had to attach his back belt to a crane and they lifted him up and put him on this, on this sky cycle where his hands just fit down perfectly on the handlebars. And a, um, a priest came and administered last rites to him. Now, that would have been a pretty big clue for me not to you know, just ask that crane to take me right back up. So a priest comes and administers the last rites uh, for him, over him. And, and he takes off like 500 pounds of propulsion, 300 miles an hour. 200-foot ramp, about to jump 1,350-foot gorge in front of him. And when he hit the very end of the ramp, uh, prematurely his, his parachute deployed. And so, of course, it slowed him down immensely, and he only made it not even to halfway across, but gently, the parachute allowed him, I say gently, he landed on his face and broke his nose, but relatively gently had the parachute not deployed. And his wife, Linda, who is a fascinating story, she was a believer, a Christian, she thought it was the hand of God that allowed that because they could tell by the physics, the trajectory, that he would have crashed right in the middle of the Snake River and it would have killed him instantly and, and immediately and obviously he would have, he would have died in, in that. And so I've always thought about evil can evil. Either, either, he is one of the bravest, most courageous people who's ever lived or the biggest idiot who's ever drawn a breath, right? Like that's, that's the two options you have. I feel the same about Samson. Like was he, was he courageous or was he idiotic? And this last week, last Sunday, we began kind of unfolding the narrative of, of Samson who was a judge uh, in Israel. And before we jump back into God's word together, I just want you to see something I find kind of interesting. The name Samson means sunshine. Uh, his name comes from the Hebrew word shemesh, which means sun. It's like Beth Shemesh in the Old Testament, the house of the sun. So the name Samson uh, means sunshine. Interestingly enough, the name Delilah, this we're going to look at today, the name Delilah means to extinguish. Uh, her name in Hebrew is Del Al, which means to press down, to, to extinguish. Now, we may have a Delilah here this morning, or maybe your favorite aunt or your favorite grandmother's name, Delilah. I'm not trying to make fun of that name. I, you know, my name's John. <laughs> 
which is synonymous with a toilet and one who visits a prostitute. And so names are kind of tricky sometimes, right? And so uh, I'm not making fun of the name Delilah, but isn't it interesting in the Old Testament that Mr. Sunshine hooks up with Miss Extinguisher and we're about to see what happens. So if you're a copy of God's word, let's go to Judges chapter 16 together. If you've been around church, I mean, at any time in your life, I bet you've heard the story of Samson and Delilah. Judges chapter 16, we'll jump down to verse four and begin the story there. I encourage you to open up your copy of God's word, have a copy of God's word with you, go to your app, share God's word with somebody else. It's also on the screen always behind me. Judges chapter 16, verse four. After this, uh, let's stop and get context. The this, sadly enough, is that Samson has just visited a prostitute back back in verse one. So he's just jumping from one disobedience to another disobedience, one rebellion to another rebellion. So after this, after visiting this prostitute, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna take this passage and, and look through this passage and find the answers to, to this thought, the, the anatomy of the temptation to sin. Because this week, every one of us in this house, probably in fact in the next five minutes and definitely this afternoon, we will all be tempted to sin. So it would be wise of us to step back and say, what, is, what does temptation really look like? When it comes at us, what is the breakdown of a temptation? What's the breakdown of sin in our lives? And so this morning, I want us to see the anatomy of temptation to sin. Here's the first thing you can write down if you want to be a note taker today or just kind of consider these things or just, again, maybe put a few of these into your heart, maybe into your tool belt this week spiritually as we fight these battles. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Sin is an ugly thing, but our enemy doesn't tempt us with ugly things. Sin is an ugly thing, but the enemy doesn't come and tempt us with, with things that are ugly. I'm not tempted to gluttony with kale and, and rice cakes, right? There, there's no, no option whatsoever of gluttony with those two things, but, but donuts and ice cream, yes. I'm not tempted to jealousy by watching someone drive an old Prius around Waco, but a, but a Tesla, I mean, yes, maybe. Like the enemy comes, and even though sin is an ugly thing, the enemy does not tempt us with ugly things. In fact, this might be a good thing to remember. I didn't put this on the screen for you, but, but, but sin is easy to love. Let me say that again for church people. We need to believe this and know this together. Sin is easy to love. It's interesting that the word that's used right here in verse, verse four, after this, after the prostitute, he loved a woman. If you have the NIV, it uses that English expression, and he fell in love with the woman. The temptation to sin is always a temptation to pleasure. Sin is always something that is easy for us on the onset to, to love. Here's the second thing. Sin wears a great mask. The very nature of sin is that it's deceitful. It, it promises this great experience. It promises this incomparable happiness. And yet in the end, it desires to, to bind you up. It desires to afflict you. It desires to, to overpower you. Look at the word that's used right here in, in verse five. When the lords, the Philistines came to Delilah, they said, seduce him. Go ahead and entice him. The, 
the word in Hebrew is the word patha, and it means deceive him. Go ahead and, and lie to him. You say, we, we, we sin thinking it's going to make us happy. We sin thinking there's going to be some great pleasure, some great acceptance that we receive, that we have, that we experience. But all the while, sin is scheming to enslave us. That's the nature of, of sin. Let's, let's read the, the narrative here. Most of you know this story, but let's walk through it together. Judges chapter 16, verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. What an interesting question. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she bound him with them. And now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber. And she said to him, to to Samson, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you bind me with new ropes, that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and the men lying in ambush, again, in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off of his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now, you have mocked me. You've told me these lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head, wove them into the web. She made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom and the web. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? (laughs) You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day, after day and urged him his soul was vexed to death and he told her all his heart and he told her all his heart can I just say to every younger sister and brother in this room be careful to whom you give your heart be discerning be limiting. There, there's three Hebrew words used right here, and I won't go into all the Hebrew nuances. There's three Hebrew words that are pulled together to make this statement that he gave her his heart, told her all his heart. That those three words, you put them together, what they truly mean at the bottom source is he exposed his heart and then surrendered it. He exposed his heart and then he just handed it over to her. And said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Here's the third thing you might want to write down about the anatomy of temptation to sin. Temptation is persistent and patient. Did you pick up time and time again that temptation that Delilah was tossing out to, to Samson. I want, I want you to see this. I, I find this really interesting. You may not, but I do. Look what it says here in verse six. So Delilah said to Samson, so this is chapter 16, verse six in your Bible. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me 
Verse 10, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me. Verse 13, I don't wanna overpreach this, but it's interesting. She drops the please this time. Tell me. Tell me how you might be bound. And look at verse 16. I bet you picked up on this earlier. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, day after day, and urged him and begged him and pleaded with him with her persistency, his soul was just worn down. It was vexed to death. Did you see the progression? Did you see the escalation of the temptation? That's the nature of the temptation to sin. It is persistent. It is patient. Mike Singletary might, that name might um, remind some of y'all of what I think is probably one of the greatest linebackers in NFL history. Played for the Chicago Bears, won the Super Bowl in 1985, was named the NFL Defensive Player of the Year. You might want to take note, he was also a Baylor Bear, not just a Chicago Bear. Played for Baylor, had some of those intense eyes. Like when you'd see him line up in the secondary or as a safety across the line, like his eyes were so intense, like fire was coming from his eyes. NFL running backs tell this story to this day that Singletary would hit them the hardest he could on the first play of the game. Whether the running back had the ball or not, he would just take them out. And he would stand over them and would say, I'm gonna be here all day. I ain't going anywhere. Can I just tell you that sin has that same temperament? That in a little sub notes, you might want to put there, it will be there all day long. Whatever that temptation is for you this past week, whatever that temptation was for you yesterday, whatever you can go ahead and guess the temptation will be for you this week, that temptation will always be there. It ain't going anywhere. That's bad grammar, but it's rich doctrine about sin. It doesn't leave. Let me also say to some of my younger brothers and sisters in the house, and maybe some in my generation will agree with this, I thought the temptation to sin would be so much lesser once I got married. Not the case. I thought temptation to sin would be so much lesser once I went into full-time ministry. Not the case. I thought the temptation to sin would be lesser when I hit 40. Not the case. I thought the temptation to sin would be lesser when I hit 50. Not the case. It's persistent. Is patient. Why, why is it patient? Because it's waiting for the perfect opportunity, waiting for just a small opening in your heart. This is the nature of temptation, part of the anatomy of the temptation to sin. Always know that there's a waiting in temptation. There's a patience in temptation. And by the way, Highland, this is the strategy of the enemy. If you're gonna fight spiritually this week, you better know the schemes of your enemy. And here's how he fights. He fights patiently. He wars against you with persistency. Here's the fourth thing. Temptation hits at our greatest weakness. Uh, Look back at verse 15, chapter 16, verse 15. And she, Delilah, said to Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? How can you play with my heart? How can you play with my emotions? I want to hear you say I love you. I want you to hear me say that I I love you as well. Here's, Here's what's interesting. This is the weakest point of Samson. He, he sincerely, desperately wanted someone to love him. This is why he visits the prostitutes. This is why he, he finds a lady back in chapter 13, chapter 14, goes, I, I want her. He was so desperate not only to be loved, I think he was desperate to love. He was desperate for acceptance. He was desperate to be held by another. 
So the enemy comes at that, at that weak spot, at the greatest weakness of Samson. And just know, Highland, that the enemy comes to our chief weaknesses as well. What's, what's yours? I mean, you know it. You know the most vulnerable point in your heart. You know the most vulnerable point in your flesh. Is it fame? Laziness? Food? Sex? Wealth? A desire to be accepted? A desire to be loved? Loneliness? We all know what our chief weakness is. And I will biblically guarantee you this is the point of attack in your heart today and this week. The enemy always comes to us at our greatest weakness. Look at Judges chapter 16. Let's continue on verse 18. So when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, there it is, he surrendered his heart. She sent and called the Lord to the Philistines saying, come up again for he has told me all of his heart. He's disclosed it. He has surrendered his heart to me. Then the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands and she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as all the other times and I will shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Did you catch that in verse 19? Delilah began to torment him. Hebrew word, anah. It means to begin to humiliate him. It means to, to debase him. It means that she began to degrade him. And there are some smart Hebrew theologians, much smarter than I, which actually is every one of them, that say anah also can be translated to sing. Most Jewish scholars believe that at this point she began to sing a sarcastic song of torment while his head was in her lap. A song to humiliate him. A song to celebrate his fallenness. If you're taking notes, you might write this down about the nature of the temptation, the anatomy of temptation to sin. Sin delights in our fallenness. We pursued it because we thought it would bring us happiness and pleasure and acceptance. Then we fall and that same sin scoffs at us. That sin turns around and betrays us. It laughs after it betrays us. And I feel it in the room right now also. So let me bring in some Jesus to this and some hope and some life. Let's say this again. Sin delights in our fallenness, but catch this. Jesus delights in our forgiveness. See, the character of Christ is the exact opposite of the character of sin. The exact opposite of the character of 
of our enemy. Sin delights in our fallenness, but Jesus delights in our forgiveness. And here's the crux of what I want to say to you from Judges chapter 16. Again, write this down or just celebrate this with me. Our enemy wants us bound as a trophy of his snares, but our God wants us free as a trophy of his grace. The enemy always has had designs on you to shackle you, to enslave you, to imprison you, to celebrate your fallenness, to make you a trophy to all of the world, to all of this city, of what it looks like to be ensnared by sin, but God. Oh, what two beautiful words, but God. Through Christ Jesus, desires you not ensnared, but free. And that you would be seen in Waco as a trophy of his kindness, a trophy of his grace. So let's see in this story the triumph of God. Judges chapter 16, verse 23. Now the lords, the Philistines, they they gathered to offer a sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, saw Samson, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, which means when they were drunk, they said, call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. I want you to understand fully what's happening here. The Philistines are celebrating the temporary. They are celebrating too soon because God has already spoken a word about Samson. Want to see it? Go back two pages to Judges chapter 13. Look at verse five with me. Look what the Lord has said about this man. Judges chapter 13, look at verse five. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, spoken to Samson's mother and father, Manoah. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Listen to the prophecy of God himself, his word, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You see, the Philistines thought that they had won. They thought that this was their victory. They had no idea that God's word had already spoken. Even though Samson was a childish man, even though he was failure after failure, rebellion after rebellion, God's word was gonna come true. Reminds me, I don't know about you, reminds me of a Friday night in Jerusalem when the devils of hell were celebrating the fact that Christ was crucified, dead, and gone. And how the voices of hell on Saturday were celebrating prematurely, celebrating the temporary, thinking they had won, but Jesus Christ would have the final word because he gave his word, he would return to life. This is the scene that I see unfolding in front of us here in Judges chapter 16, verses 23 through 25. So let's move ahead here in verse 25, the second part. And they made him stand between the pillars. Wow, watch the victory of God. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords, the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson just entertained. Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, now let me take a time out real quick. Samson does something for the first time in his life that we know of. He prayed. 
He turned away from the passions of this world, the passions of his flesh, the constant temptations to which he was always saying yes. And he said, oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and catched this picture. And he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. In self-sacrifice, Samson begins the deliverance of Israel. Jesus is the better Samson. With his arms outstretched in his own death, he delivers his people. With his arms outstretched, the one who had no sin absorbed the full weight of our sin that we might live forever. Would you quietly stand with me, please, as we remember the cross, and would you pray with me? Father, today we remember the sinless one, Jesus, the better Samson, the greater Samson, willing to push down sin and absorb sin as a sacrifice to deliver us as his people. My sin, our sin, your sin, who are here today in this audience, our sin fell on Jesus that we might be freed from the oppression of our rebellion and the oppression of our shame. So we fix our eyes upon that Christ who died that we might live, who absorbed our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's in Christ that we remember and we pray. Amen.